The Energy Gang is brought to you by Solar Edge, a global provider of solar inverters and solar panel optimization electronics. Solar Edge is a leader of the DC optimizer market, a leading supplier of inverters to the U.S. residential market, and a top five supplier to the U.S. commercial market. The company is active in over 91 countries, having shipped over 11 million power optimizers and over 450,000 inverters. To find out more about Solar Edge's inverters and optimizers, visit SolarEdge.com. This is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey. Is Pokemon Go a ploy by Elon Musk to distract us from a government investigation into Tesla's autopilot function? I guess we'll find out by reading his new secret master plan, expected out soon. Meanwhile, we will provide a glimpse into America's master plan for transportation. Ruben Sarkar, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Transportation, will be here to talk electric cars, natural gas cars, autonomous cars, car efficiency, and how the public sector can make automotive innovation easier in the private sector. We will see if we can cover all of that in the show with the limited time we have. Later in the show, though, we'll discuss the end of nuclear power in California, and we'll ask about Sungevity's novel approach to going public, an act of desperation, or a clever way to raise money. By my side are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, my regular co-hosts. Catherine is a partner with 38 North Solutions in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. How are you? I'm doing great. I was almost hit by a car yesterday that was not in autopilot, and I was not playing Pokemon Go. Well, I'm certainly glad you are here, safe and sound with us, Pokemon or not. Jigger Shaw is in New York City. He's the president of Generate Capital. Hey, Jigger, have you downloaded Pokemon yet? <laughs> I have not downloaded it, and I... Don't plan to download it. Let me introduce our guest, who also comes to us from the nation's capital. As you heard at the top of the show, Ruben Sarkar is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Transportation at the Department of Energy. So what does that mean? Well, it means he oversees yearly investment of $600 million in all kinds of vehicle technologies and manufacturing programs. Mr. Sarkar came from the private sector. He worked at GM for a decade, where he led engineering of the electric drivetrain for the Chevy Volt. He then led business development for Proterra, an electric bus company, before finally moving over to the DOE. He is now right here with us. Ruben, welcome. Uh, yes, Stephen, it's great to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. We've lamented many times on this podcast that we are so far away from phasing out fossil fuels and transportation. I still believe that, but it's clear now that we're on the cusp of some, some very meaningful changes. Electric cars are becoming more mainstream offerings. Car sharing is you know, becoming the norm in cities particularly. Autonomous vehicles are getting a lot more attention from manufacturers. And the world's biggest tech companies are all trying to get in on the auto game and compete with traditional manufacturers to make cars easier to drive, to make them cleaner, etc. When you look at all those areas, broadly speaking, what are the what are the areas that you feel have the most immediate impact? What excites you? Well, I, I think this is a really uh, new and provocative topic for here at the Department of Energy. Uh, we actually just convened about 500 people at our first ever Sustainable Transportation Summit uh, on Monday uh, to really look forward and peer into the future on what are the things that we have to do to to have you know deep decarbonization of transportation and how will future mobility. Uh, really drive kind of transformative change uh, in the sector. Uh, there are some people that say that we're going to see more transformative change in the next 10 years than we've seen in the last 100. 
And whether it's 10 or 20, I think what is certain from my perspective is that uh, the future holds uh, some very dramatic change uh, with respect to electrification, um, a shared economy, uh, the convergence of information communication technologies, uh, including connected and automated vehicles, as well as this trend towards multimodal transportation, uh, at least in urban areas. Those four things together, we think, have the potential to drive a deep uh, decarbonization and electrification um, of our transportation system. So, Ruben, um, you know, when I was a young t- guy, I uh, worked for the Office of Transportation Technologies as a consultant uh, under the Clinton administration. And, I mean, I have to say that this just sounds like a lot more of the same, right? I mean, like, what happens if all of these things move forward and so we don't use less oil? Like, I, I just, I, I wonder sometimes about, like, whether we're just lacking in intentionality and all of this stuff just looks like great pilot programs. Yeah, I, I, well, and so this is interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, just yesterday and the day before we convened about, uh, as part of our summit and a dialogue series we're having on this very topic, we convened about 40 different thought leaders uh, here in D.C., and we have two other stops along the road in San Francisco and Ann Arbor this month. And the whole purpose of the conversation was to peer into the future and to hypothesize what the future worlds might be because these new technologies and and new business models and new megatrends and they all, they all have kind of worlds colliding and have the potential to create a number of either utopian or dystopian kind of outcomes. And so we had a very interesting conversation to say, you know, what might the world look like? Uh, and put, you know, three or four different kinds of, you know, potential narratives about what we think might happen way, way out into the future, 20, 20, you know, 20, 2050. And, uh, and then we backed all the way up to today and said, you know, there's a lot of things happening. There's the hype curve. There's the influx of all these people uh, coming into the space, but if we just set that aside for a second and we peer all the way to those hypothetical futures, what are the things that we could start to do now uh, to um, shape from a technology, a policy, and a market outcome that would ultimately then drive the final um, world that we want to be in, which is a deeply decarbonized transportation sector that's not reliant on petroleum uh, and that gives everybody a high quality and high mobility and accessibility in life. And so I think we're trying to take those steps now to be very purposeful uh, to take this from just being a pilot uh, of technology. And we're also cognizant of the fact that there are going to be many bumps in the road and the perceptions are going to be, you know, potentially some uh, boom and bust cycles where the hype grows and then the reality sets in about the challenges and then we, we continue to make a purposeful march. Uh, there is an opportunity to use this to deeply decarbonize and re- reduce our reliance on petroleum, but it's got to be um, a, a long-term uh uh, set of efforts and decisions and kind of a purposeful march uh, to get there. Yeah, so Ruben, I worked at the National Renewable Energy Lab in the days of the Partnership for New Generation of Vehicles when we were looking at hybrid drivetrains, right? And, you know, the tricky part for you is this paradox of making sure that you don't pick winners and losers, that you really go forward with on a number of different technology research and development, um, and at the same time figuring out, you know, how do we see into the future and spend taxpayer dollars most effectively? So I'd love to kind of hear how do you make those decisions on what you're going to go forward with? Yeah, so I, I think that um, we ask ourselves kind of five core questions about about any particular project that we invest in. And, and the first is, you know, what is the impact uh, relative to our goals? And is it, is it a high impact problem? Uh, the second question we ask of any project is, um, will this make a large difference relative to what the private sector is already doing in uh, uh, their um, uh, different funding mechanisms? Uh, the third thing is, are we being open and having an openness 
uh, to new players, a broad view of the problem, uh, new ideas and new approaches. Uh, and then the, uh, we look at, you know, will it drive an enduring economic impact, uh, and is it the proper role of government? And so to answer your question, um, we, we basically assess all of the different technologies. Um, we see whether these technologies can um, help us achieve those broader administration goals. And what we find today is that um, there's no single silver bullet uh, that is out there that helps us achieve all of the objectives I mentioned, primarily the decarbonization of transportation, uh, and that you still, at this point in time, need to have an all-of-the-above approach. You still have to cultivate uh, oil resources, even though oil is not, uh, you know, we want to get off of petroleum. It's abundant today. It's, it, we have domestic resources, and it's low cost, but it has uh, issues with volatility and environmental footprint. And then we have to match that with cultivating uh, biomass resources, hydrogen resources, and electricity, uh, you know, grid resources, um, you know, to, to together uh, come up with a combined solution that meets all market needs. Jigger, I want to kind of uh, flesh out the point that you made. And you, you said that you think that this is more of the same. And I would counter that by saying, you know, reiterating my earlier comments, and, and that is like there seem to be in the last couple of years in particular a lot of trends that are materially different from other transportation shifts. And, uh, you know, the electric electric vehicle technology is just a lot sexier and a lot better today. Battery lives have gotten better. Car sharing and software and mobile apps are prevalent. Um, you have cities and states really thinking about how to change transportation policy so you, and and uh, city planning so that people get around differently. I don't know. It seems pretty different to me. Why do you push back and say that this is uh, more of the same? Look, I mean, as someone who has followed this for a very long time, I can tell you with great certainty that I am not optimistic that this is going to work, right? I mean, I think that basically the the plan on the books right now is increased cafe standards, which is basically the equivalent of making coal plants more efficient. If that was the entirety of our goal, we wouldn't have gotten there, right? So now if you really believe that what we need to do is actually have fuel switching, I don't think we're anywhere on natural gas for vehicles. The Pickens plan, as far as I'm concerned, is dead. When you think about electric vehicles, I mean, Ruben, you tell me, when do you think that 10% of all new cars in this country will be electric vehicles? Hell, when do you think the GSA will actually meet its own internal Obama administration goals for buying clean vehicles? Um, so let me address a little bit of the first question, and I'll maybe take a bigger picture view. Um, I, I think that um, we, we do see a lot of progress in the in the in the areas of efficiency improvements, um, fuel substitution, and um, you know general um, system level gains and decarbonization of things like the grid and others. In fact, some of our efforts on the grid have led to a dramatic uh, improvement in um, you know greenhouse gas emissions from the grid. Recently, the grid uh, has dropped lower than. Than the transportation sector, saying that you know our efforts, in fact, do um, do uh, have an impact. You mentioned a couple of things there, so I'll try to tackle one uh, a little bit at a time. I can't forecast what the penetration is going to be of EVs by what date. Um, what I can tell you is that um, we've seen trends in lots of technologies, even engine technologies that are in the market today and are prevalent. Took 15 years to penetrate into the marketplace on an annual sales basis, and so simple things like fuel injectors didn't uh, jump immediately up to 100% penetration. And so when you look at the adoption curves of EVs and hybrids and others, uh, it's not so different uh, uh, than what you see for a lot of technologies. And I think that 
you know, you look at variable, variable valve timing and things that, that people take for granted today were not always prevalent. And so there's a, there's a, a rate of adoption that has to take place. Um, with regards to um, the success of these kinds of initiatives, and I assume you mean things like CAFE or the Phase Two truck ruling and other things, we are not the regulators at DOE, so we don't set the regulations. Um, we do, however, uh, have input uh, and inform people about the state of technology as well as drive the state of technology. And we believe that there is a strong um, virtuous cycle between uh, uh, technology, innovation, and policy setting. And so just in our, our space here, um, you know, in the truck sector, uh, we see um, uh, a lot of success coming out of things like our super truck program, where we're seeing both efficiency gains uh, and dramatic efficiency gains that are possible through research and demonstration with technologies that can be commercialized. And we think that those uh, gains are supported by industry, will make their way into the market, and are making way their, their way into the market, and are actually in line with helping uh, achieve those more stringent policy goals. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, in the Class 8 sector for trucks, we're seeing a tremendous potential to, to really improve fuel economy. So, no, Ruben, look, I, look I, I'm on your side, right? I mean, I'm on the board of the Rocky Mountain Institute. We have an, an extraordinary initiative that I think is really helping you guys be successful in the North American Council for Freight Efficiency, which is leading the way on truck efficiency. But, but I just think that we should be honest with ourselves with transportation, right? We set up the Department of Energy on purpose in the 1970s because of the Arab oil crisis. Right. But all of the gains have really been in electricity. Right. And part of that's because of renewable portfolio standards and part of it's because of tax credits and part of it's because of, you know, innovation investments that we made. Fine. Right. But at the end of the day, right, if I'm looking towards a goal of being 100 percent, you know, low carbon, I can see the future in that in electricity. I have no optimism around seeing that in transportation. I think when you just think about where we are going, I mean, the Obama administration in 2008, 2009, well, 2009, you know, mandated that the GSA buy clean vehicles. They have been woefully behind on buying clean vehicles. When you look at the CEO of Volvo off camera, basically said negative things about natural gas for trucks because he doesn't really believe in it, right? I just think that when you think about where I'm supposed to be optimistic, it's really in fuel economy standards, which is great, but it but it's unsatisfying. Well, I, I want to maybe address that because I think we've covered kind of near term, short term, multi agency issues in a, a whole swath of things, and I would I would want to just take a pause and say a couple of things. Um, one, I can't speak on behalf of EPA, DOT, GSA, or other organizations uh, with respect to their decision making and their procurement policies and and so forth. On things like CAFE, again, we are not the regulatory agencies, but we do develop technologies that we think are going to be available to support those standards in the marketplace. Uh, and there will be a period of time at which, you know, if you look at the short term, that there could be uh, cost premiums, you know, for new technologies in the marketplace. Uh, but within the Department of Energy, we don't look at, you know, the next five years, so to speak. We're not focused on the procurement that takes place, you know, just around the bend. Our goal is to achieve those longer range goals on decarbonization and, and switching out of petroleum and increasing efficiency, uh, substituting for renewable domestic fuels and so forth. And when we look at that time horizon and the, the progress we're seeing, we're seeing a tremendous amount of progress uh, that we think is going to enable these technologies in the marketplace. And so just as an example, um, electrification of transportation. Um, when we see the kinds of performance and cost that are coming out of our uh, research, uh, we see a very clear pathway that those technologies will eventually get down and become more and more cost competitive in the marketplace. 
those aren't going to be ready uh, for procurements that take place, you know, six months from now. These are things that will drive long-term uh, change in the marketplace. Uh, similarly, uh, you have all the things we talked about earlier, which we think are very transformative in terms of uh, shared mobility, connected and automated vehicles, and other things that we think will help be synergistic in, in further driving that kind of adoption. And so, you know, we play the long game here uh, at DOE, and though we're not the regulators, uh, we see a lot of promise in the technologies that we're developing. And I'll, and I'll just add one other thing. Um, we recently published a report called Revolution Now, uh, and in Revolution Now, it actually outlines a number of clean energy technologies in which over sustained periods of investment, we are now seeing dramatic uh, falling costs in a number of clean energy uh, areas, and those are associated with a dramatic uptick in adoption. And so I think that, you know, and we see batteries coming along in that, in that same space. And so you think about things like solar and wind, um, those similar kinds of uh, persistent investments uh, and progress are the things that really drive the ultimate change in the marketplace. And so I don't think you can look at the short term uh, as a prediction of um, uh, major long-term efforts and what's going to actually uh, change in the marketplace. Yeah, and Ruben, I would just um, throw in also that we can't discount the fact that there are other players out there like utilities that really care about electrification. I was, for example, yesterday moderating a panel at the National Town Meeting here in D.C., and my panel was two former utility execs and a utility, a current utility exec, and the question was about consumer apps and utilities, and I, the, I, the last question was, what's the next big thing? And all of them said the electric vehicle is going to be the control center of energy writ large, which I found really interesting because it shows that we're moving so quickly from caring anything about what really is going on in your home and having that be incorporated in what utilities and the transport system are doing. Well, for look, for what it's worth, I mean, Ruben, I, I think the work you guys are doing is extraordinary. So I certainly... I'm not saying anything negative about DOE and the work that they're doing and the investments that they're doing. I just simply think that even on this last point that Catherine made, I think first getting to 10% electric vehicle sales in the U.S. is going to be hard. I mean, even hybrid electric vehicles are not really at 10% today. Um, and second of all, I mean, I just think that to suggest that we're going to replace all vehicles in this country with electric vehicles and that's going to solve our problem, it seems to me like we actually have to get rid of cars, right? I mean, ultimately, that when you think about... Um, you know, the fact that AAA says that the average car costs the average American family $900 a month, that's more expensive than most people's home payments in this country. And so it just seems to me like car sharing and other things hopefully are being used as a way to get Generation Y to kick the car habit. Yeah, so, I, you know, I, I do think that we will see much deeper penetration, and I don't think there's anything that says that 10% is somehow the magic uh, limit. Um, you know, if you think about um, the future, I, I, I do think that electrification will continue on its march, and it ties into what you're talking about later on shared mobility and other things. But, um, you know, utilities are starting to get on board in terms of the need to see uh, transportation electrification as a part to a, a holistic solution, not only for transportation, but also for the grid. Uh, you see lots of new entrants coming into the marketplace, and, you know, you hear all the, the speculation and rumors about who's going to build a new, a new car. But when you really look at the performance and efficiency of electrified powertrains, um, we do think that uh, the long-term future, while it will coexist with gasoline and petroleum engines for a period, the long-term future will have, in the light-duty sector at least, um, a heavy base on some sort of electrification as the platform 
uh, with potentially different uh, power units, you know, auxiliary power units to deliver. It's about, as I said, low carbon electrons for efficient electrified powertrains, we think is, is the long-term game. If you look across the multiple modes and sectors, one could argue that aviation can't fly with batteries, right? So you have to have liquid fuels for them. And we do work across multiple transportation modes here. So what, what's the solution for aviation? And they're doing heavy investments into things like biofuels. Uh, in the truck space, the same thing. There are applications where electrification makes sense, but there's also applications where you still got to focus on, on liquefied fuels. I do think that if you think more broadly about how do we get to zero emission, lower emission technologies, um, and... I think there's great potential for uh, those to penetrate well beyond um, the uh, you know 10% to 10% line, and um, uh, but I do think that you will have a, a you know uh, engines that will be around for a period of time. I do think we have to have investments and efforts that are cost effective and raise the floor of those technologies, while at the same time still continuing the march and the focus on leapfrogging you know, uh, those technologies to to get to the next level. So th- I, I do think that uh, there's no there's no question in our minds that um, it, it is achievable to really drive um, solutions that, that dramatically get above. Um, and, and again, I don't want to forecast sales of particular kinds of vehicles. It is about uh, having a, a suite of options that help us achieve those uh, for different customers, for different market segments, for different modes. Okay, so your job is to be diplomatic when it comes to talking about the private sector and so forth. So I don't know how honestly you can answer this question, but you did come from GM and from Proterra. There are some pretty substantial shifts underway that auto manufacturers are trying to grapple with. One is car sharing, one is electrification. Another is um, using batteries for stationary storage and how can auto manufacturers get into energy services within the home. And so there are a lot of components here that companies are are grappling with. Uh, And then when you have, when you consider like Apple and Tesla and Google getting into auto manufacturing, what is, uh, how prepared do you think auto manufacturers are to deal with these challenges and seize the day, if you will? Yeah, I think they're all very aware of the changing landscape and the perpetual disruption that's happening because of, as I mentioned, worlds colliding, right? Different sectors coming in to all play in the same space. And it's all being driven by the tremendous amount of value, right, that think people think they can generate uh, in the transportation space with some of these new, you know, shared economy, shared mobility, connected technologies. So most of the OEMs, and I won't, you know, go into specifics, but many of them are, are very well abreast of what's going on. They may not often be as public about things, but there are those who are, and they're doing many experiments in many different areas. I know that, um, you know, Ford is 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 really um, 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 forward thinking in terms of uh, conducting what they call twenty five or twenty experiments to try to determine, you know, what what is what does the future hold and how should they position themselves. And so, I think many are considering this themselves not just car companies, but potentially solution companies, mobility service companies, and otherwise. Now, with that said, you bring um, Different, different time horizons, different skills, and different capabilities from different sectors. And, and I'll clarify what I mean by that. The automotive industry operates on a certain product development cycle and a certain time, or what people call clock speed. And, um, and it's designed around manufacturing, reliability, and um, not necessarily as much on the technology innovation side of the equation. You then bring in the rapid integration of information communication technologies into cars, and that runs on a different cycle and a different speed with a different set of skills. And so I think that um, what you're seeing happen is those who are preparing for the future are partnering strategically in many different ways. You, you can't innovate on all fronts, and you can't be expert on all fronts, in my opinion, and you don't have the investment dollars to spend them on all fronts. And so I think that partnering uh, in car companies who view themselves uh, – 
um, kind of more like uh, you know mobility companies, or more broadly than what they are, will find the right partners. For example, on on the battery technologies and the the hardware and software technologies that go into to the cars, and then maybe find the other partnerships uh, on. Um, the connected services, the map services, GPS services, and others. And so I think they're well ahead on thinking about this. It doesn't mean that they're uh, free and clear of competition, and it doesn't mean there won't be stiff competition and new entrants uh, and people who exit the business. Uh, but I think that um, um, people are working on it. And, and I'll just add one thing there. I really think it's a battle for talent uh, is really kind of the key driver that I just – it's my personal opinion. But – um, you know, uh, talent and having the right workforce developed and having access to resources is, is a real critical thing because you have lots of people pulling on it from a lots of different perspectives. Ruben Sarkar is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Transportation at the Department of Energy. Gave us a, more than a few reasons there to be optimistic. Thank you for the conversation and for helping me think a little bit more differently about transportation. Appreciate you being on. Oh, thank you. Okay, let's take a moment here to talk about our sponsor, and our sponsor is, of course, Solar Edge. Solar Edge is uh, talking a lot about the smart inverter as the backbone of the smart home. Solar PV systems are not just made up of a bunch of silicon, glass, and metal. They actually have brains now, and Solar Edge is leading the revolution in making PV systems smart. Solar Edge's insight was to see that a PV system is more than just a solar module. It is an architecture of smart modules, inverters, monitoring and now also batteries and home load management devices. What is the secret to adding intelligence to all these systems? The inverter, of course. On the horizon is a future where the smart solar edge inverter controls the smart home, connected to the grid and to the cloud, that controls energy production, storage, and even your appliances. Smart PV systems were just the start. The next step is the smart home and storage, and this future belongs to Solar Edge. To find out more about the future of energy, visit SolarEdge.com. On to our second topic. It is the end of an era for nuclear in California. By 2025, Diablo Canyon, the state's last remaining nuclear plant, will shut down. The two reactors account for 2,240 megawatts of capacity in the state, and now Pacific Gas and Electric and California regulators need to figure out how to fill the gap with renewables. The decision to close the plant is unexpectedly controversial. The nuclear industry feels under attack. Some pro-nuclear climate advocates say it will raise emissions, and pro-closure groups say not to worry. Other clean resources are ready to fill in the gap. This is an extraordinary test for renewables, because the Utility Commission says that efficiency and renewables must make up for the lost generation. And now all involved are responsible for crafting a plan to harness solar, wind, geothermal, batteries, and efficiency to stitch together a virtual power plant. Catherine, I know that California is unique here, right, because of how much renewable energy they already have in place because of their history with progressive regulation. But this is a really big deal. How significant do you think this is? Yeah, so you're right that they have all of these goals already in place. So the market's already shifted to be able to do renewables and efficiency um, in high penetration. But the Diablo's in the details because, um, yes, uh, this this is a huge deal that this plant is coming off. It's 8.6% of California's electricity. Now, not all of that actually needs replacing. So only some portion of that is really going to be replacing be replaced because of different local needs um, and because the, the grid really needs more flexibility than it does 
base load necessarily. Uh, so really, nuclear plants can't give the grid everything it needs. However, um, after I talked to the Sierra Club, uh, Matt Vespa, who and, and they, by the way, support this very strongly and, and support the fact that this it, that it is unnecessary to have this plant. But part of the issue is that it doesn't appear that PG&E is either moving up their timeline for deployment of clean resources or is doing more in deployment than is already set in their goals. So that's kind of the question is if you don't either amp up your goals or move up your timeline for deploying them, you may, in effect, while you're not going to get additional natural gas built, you may end up having the existing plants run more until you can get those clean resources online. But this is going to come over the next decade. So we do have a lot of time here, right? Yeah, I think the issue is going to be in the planning process. So, you know, making sure that we're really vigilant on, um, because utilities do have to plan so far in advance. Well, maybe you need to instead move up your timeline instead of to 2030, move it up based on when the plant closure is going to be the different units of the plant. And they are planning on doing 2,000 gigawatt hours of efficiency procurements pretty quickly. But remember, this is 18,000 gigawatt hours that Diablo Canyon produces now. So part of this is just trying to make sure that we really deploy what we need and plan for that in advance. Jigger, let's hear your thoughts. After the Aliso Canyon natural gas leak, when we saw California regulators warn about fuel shortages and potential brownouts, you criticized them for saying that these were scare tactics and that they weren't recognizing that renewables and efficiency were ready to fill in that gap. This seems to be a completely different recognition. They're now saying, yes, in the next nine or 10 years, we will have enough cost-effective generation from renewables to fill in the you know, 2,000 megawatts or whatever it is of Diablo Canyon. That's pretty significant, and it seems to back up what your argument from before. Yeah, I think the intellectual argument absolutely is being backed up by you know, what I'd said before. But I think that you know, I'd like to take a different spin on this, which is that Basically, you're seeing an extraordinary amount of work being done by, you know, the Breakthrough Institute, by Third Way, by all these other people. And this can be viewed as nothing but a colossal failure on their part to actually be relevant. Um, You know, I think that, you know, when you look at SB 350, um, PG&E tried really hard to make that into um, sort of a broader resource mandate. So not just a 50% renewable energy target, but actually... um, you know, something that included nuclear, et cetera. And they failed miserably, mostly because of, you know, the natural gas explosion and some other stuff that they had in San Bruno. And so then they just lacked sort of the um, negotiating authority given all the negative publicity that they were receiving at the time. But I just think that it's amazing to me that we are going to lose all of these existing nuclear plants, which have existing sort of low greenhouse gas emissions uh, electricity, because there's literally no one that's competent to fight for them. But Jigger, they're not cost-effective to keep open. That's what PG&E found. They said it is not worth it from a cost perspective to try to relicense. Instead, they can find much cheaper solutions that we talk about all the time. Yeah, no, I get that. But like, but to suggest for a moment that it's a win for us to basically shut down 8.6% of you know, California's clean electricity and then spend a decade replacing that 8.6 percent 
instead of actually adding to that 8.6% from a climate perspective, is crazy. I totally agree. But Catherine's right. There's an economics issue here. And I disagree with your assessment of the Breakthrough Institute and a lot of the pro-nuclear advocates because they've changed the conversation. There's two components of this. One is the how people view nuclear power. And I think they've done a great job of making people realize that nuclear needs to play a role in a low-carbon future and we need to revisit existing licenses and make sure we extend them and then potentially build new plants. But like that was nobody was really talking about that five or six years ago, and they've done an effective job of making sure that people are talking about that. The policy chops, though, you know, they're outgunned. There are a lot of environmental groups who have been working on this issue for decades, and it's really hard to break through that. So the nuclear industry, if you want to call it an industry, you know, they don't have a great lobby. You have these other independent groups who are coming in who are trying to fill up fill that gap, but they're up against a like a deep history of lobbying that's very hard to break through. So I'd say, you know, I disagree with you in that they're a failure, but I'd say yeah, it's you know, from a like a boots on the ground policy perspective, they haven't done a great job, but I don't think that that's necessarily a failure on their part. I think that they're underfunded and that they're up against a lot of history. You're right, but I, you know, I don't feel like lifting a finger. I mean, the vast majority of their rhetoric has been anti-renewables and how we're variable and how we're unreliable and how we're whatever. And so, yeah, look, I mean, I think this Diablo Canyon shows exactly what's going to happen across the country because, you know, it's basically, I mean, in New York State, I think we took a much better approach and we, you know, basically offered up um, hundreds of millions of dollars to save the the nuclear power plants uh, through the end of their life, because I think that's the right thing to do. Um, but that's mostly just because um, it's more, I would say, it's less political in New York, and it's far more just, you know, like technocrats that are doing things the right way. Um, but it's just, I mean, to me, I mean, I wrote this piece on LinkedIn, which got a tremendous amount of following, and, you know, basically said, look, you know, I mean, if the nuclear industry or whatever is remaining there would stop being so anti-renewables, there might actually be a shot of a deal. Well, and I think it's a lot less about K Street, Stephen, than about Wall Street. I mean, this is about um, this is about technology that is really difficult to invest in because it is so expensive. Yeah, it is expensive, and I'm not making the case for a resurgence and renaissance of nuclear in terms of new nuclear power. I mean, we can certainly have that conversation at a later date. But I am saying that for the 17 nuclear power plants that have been identified as ones that are on the bubble, including Diablo Canyon, that, you know, for, you know, somewhere on the, in, in the order of between 100 and $200 million a year per plant, you could actually save them all, which is the equivalent of less than $15 a ton of CO2, which in California, you know, that is sort of where it's trading anyway, the carbon the carbon credits, um, it just seems like it'd be better to save those power plants through the natural end of those power plants' life, let's call it 2030, than to be shutting them down prematurely. You know, this plant plays a fascinating role in environmental history. And in the late 60s, when PG&E proposed this plant, it galvanized the anti-nuclear movement. Um, So, you know, when the Seabrook power plant was proposed the the east coast nuclear anti-nuclear movement grew and then when diablo canyon was proposed the west coast movement grew and then they eventually came together and um you know what's what's interesting is that david uh, brower of the sierra club 
broke from the the Sierra Club because of their support for Diablo Canyon and their then support for nuclear energy. And he helped form Friends of the Earth, which was the organization that worked very closely to craft this plan for phasing out Diablo Canyon and bringing in renewable generation. And they were surprisingly effective at this. They commissioned a third-party report looking at a few different scenarios for how to use renewables and efficiency to make up for Diablo Canyon. And so, like, uh, the, the LA Times pointed this out. It was a bit of history that I had never I had never heard about. I and wouldn't it was, say— It's really, really interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't say surprisingly— Effective. I mean, David Freeman is basically the chairman of their board and used to be the head of LADWP and then was the head of the um, the emergency California you know, power authority under Gray Davis. So, I mean, they had some heavy hitters doing it and and it makes complete sense. I just I, I just think that it's you know, I, I don't believe that the environmental groups can change their stripes. I mean, ultimately, the vast majority of their members are anti-nuclear. And so you can imagine that if they decided to go a different way, many of those executive directors would lose their job. Um, not dissimilar to what happened with Carl Pope and Mike Brune at, at Sierra Club when Carl was a little, you know, perceived to be too chummy with the natural gas industry. Um but I, but I do think that the renewable energy industry, the solar and wind guys that I know, were not anti-nuclear. And I think we'd be happy to cut a deal with the nuclear industry if they brought something to the table like money for lobbying or votes at the state legislature level to to be able to extend RPS standards. And that is something we're testing, right? That is exactly what's happening in Illinois. And we'll see whether we get a deal done in Illinois uh, to save those two nuclear plants and in exchange unlock all the solar and wind development there. Well, there's two ways to look at this. One is that we're losing important low-carbon generation, and we're now running in place when we consider long-term greenhouse gas emission reductions. And I think I agree with your assessment there, Jigger. The other is Catherine's argument, and that is when they looked at the economics of renewable generation, demand response, and energy efficiency, they realized that it was cheaper to fill in the gap rather than keep Diablo Canyon open beyond 2025. Powerful recognition of where these technologies are. So there are two ways to look at it. Uh, A fascinating story coming out of California. And I think that brings us to the end of this conversation. So let's go to the third briefly. I want to talk about Sungevity. Last week, Sungevity, which is America's third biggest residential solar installer, entered a reverse merger with Easterly Acquisition Corporation, which valued the company at $357 million. This is becoming pretty popular for technology companies looking for new capital sources, you know, these small cap companies that that are really in dire need of capital. After the deal is closed, Easterly becomes Sungevity Holdings. Sungevity's current shareholders are going to retain 58.8% of the company. Is this a good deal for Sungevity, or is it a sign that the company was struggling? And does becoming a microcap stock bring in new risks? Jigger, help us understand why Sungevity might have made this move in the first place. Well, um, I mean, I think this was a fantastic deal for Sungevity so, and its shareholders. So, I mean, I'm hopeful that when all the regulatory processes are done and the stock starts trading, that the stock continues to stay up at where it's predicted to stay. It, uh, the deal is um, but it was struck. So, um, but I certainly think this is a great deal for Sungevity. They they definitely were sort of at the end of their cash position and were laying people off, and um, um, you know would have had to go back out and raise more money from investors. And you know one could have imagined that that was probably going to be a down round 
um, which would have, you know, squeezed existing investors. So this was a great move. I think more broadly, so what they did was they worked with a SPAC, uh, which is a special purpose uh, acquisition company. And the, there are many of these SPACs. And the way these SPACs work is, you know, basically someone gives you, let's say, $200 million. Um, a lot of people have them, TPG, you know, others. And, um, and what happens is, what's interesting is that the investors basically invest in U.S. treasuries, basically. They lever it up. <clears throat> so they basically make, you know, sort of like 9%, 10 on that money while it's sitting there um, through the leverage. And then they sort of just sit there. And then the management team has up to two years to basically buy something um, and then convert the company into whatever they bought. Um, and they basically only have one chance to do it. It's rare that the SPAC does two or three deals. They normally just do one deal. So this SPAC was out there and, you know, they made it, I think they ultimately made a good decision in buying Sungevity, which basically allowed Sungevity to go public and, you know, and live to fight another day. Um, but no, I think this is a fantastic outcome for Sungevity and their shareholders. Okay, so you said this is a good deal for Sungevity, but the counter to that is that being a micro-cap stock is definitely risky. I mean, you got to really do well operationally to to grow and to convince shareholders to buy your stock because you don't have like a long-term shareholder base, you don't have analyst coverage. This this is all like these are these are all really important factors for public companies, and so Sungevity just has to execute so well in order to um, grow its shares, its share price, and then you know this is also evidence that the company was running out of money, right? It needed to do this, so that raises the question about whether it is doing well operationally as it enters into this reverse merger. Well, it was crystal clear that they were running out of money. So, I mean, I don't think that's a secret. Um, I think your characterization as a micro cap, you know, maybe, but the, the definition of micro cap is 50 to $300 million. Um, I think they're going to be valued above that. So, um, and that matters because there's a lot of hedge fund managers and mutual funds that can't buy micro caps. So I think that people can buy their stock because, um, they're not a micro cap technically, I think. Um, we'll see if their stock price trades down and it makes them an intro micro cap. Um, but look, I think Sungevity has been given a new lease on life, right? So I think that, you know, I'm going to view this as very positive for Sungevity and its shareholders. And then, you know, we'll see. Now you're right. Sungevity has to execute and they have to be profitable. And I think the number one piece of advice I'd give Sungevity and its shareholders is like, you know, just don't grow for growth's sake, you know, like, you know, try to pursue profitable growth. Every quarter should be profitable, and they can be. They clearly have a very good core business. It's it's their growth that actually gets them in trouble um, because they're basically burning cash to achieve that growth. Okay, that caps off that conversation. It is time to tell our listeners something they may not know. Catherine, you're up first this week. Great. So today is the last day of the congressional session until the week of September September 12th, I believe, um, because they're all going to their conventions and uh, doing the show there. But there were there are a couple things I just wanted to let everybody be aware of, because there will be staff certainly continuing to work through the summer on different issues. Um, and there are some sort of outstanding clean energy 
topic areas, one of which is the energy bill, which was voted this week to go to conference. So um, if they're able to have a lame duck, and there may not be a lame duck, by the way. So if they pass, uh, the House Republicans want to pass a six-month continuing resolution in September, which would take them to, to next year. And that would, if you did that, you would not have a lame duck. So there would not be vehicles to do a lot of interesting things, which are things we need done. One of which is the energy bill. Um, if you have an energy bill, if you have a lame duck, you may be able to get some tax provisions in, like those cleanup issues from the investment tax credit, the geothermal, the um, small wind, those those provisions, fuel cells that fell out during the omnibus um, in Section 48 and 25D. There also have been two um, investment tax credit bills introduced, one in the House and one in the Senate, totally bipartisan for energy storage as a separate line item in the um, ITC, which would also be great to put into the mix. So we're kind of waiting to see what happens uh, as we close into September to see if they're going to get a continuing resolution for the budget that will be short term. If it's only a couple months, then you'll be able to get some things done in the lame duck, which certainly a bunch of us working on clean energy are hoping they will do. Uh, following Congress, you're always simultaneously disappointed, but at the on the edge of your seat. I'm yes, uh, and always optimistic, Stephen. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, meaning you, meaning me. You're the <laughs> right. optimistic one. Jigger, what's your story? Well, so I'm going to go double barreled here. A quick one is uh, I don't know if folks are following the craziness in the UK, but they just decided to basically scrap the Department for Climate Change. So they're going to merge it into this energy and business group, which you know sounds to me like it's not going to get the level of scrutiny that and the level of attention that it probably should. So that kind of sucks. Um, and then, but on a more positive, maybe note, um, I was really intrigued by a new report by Tigercom, where they did an analysis on the wind industry and their use of social media. And it was really an interesting read. So for those folks who haven't read it, um, I'd love for you to look at it because um, it basically shows that the wind industry participates in social media, but doesn't actually thrive in social media. I think the average on Facebook was just 0.19 posts per day and on Instagram 0.07 posts per day. And so he's coming out with uh, analysis of the solar industry next. But I just thought it was fascinating how behind um, the wind industry is on, you know, using social media. So mine is just a brief mention of a side project that I'm working on in my ample spare time. It is a new podcast on climate change called Warm Regards. It's a show like this with three experts who talk about the latest climate science. Uh, it is hosted by Eric Holthaus, who is uh, a meteorologist and climate correspondent at Slate. It is uh, got Andy Revkin of the New York Times of the Dot Earth blog there. And Jacqueline Gill, who's a paleoclimatologist at the University of Maine, Orono. And a great group of folks, very interesting conversations. They've had a few episodes now. And if you're into climate science, into climate politics, uh, I highly recommend checking it out. And I'm kind of behind the scenes helping out with that show. So I'm assuming that there are some people who listen to this podcast who are just into clean tech business trends. But if you like the climate stuff, too, and want climate all the time, you might want to check it out. Again, warm regards. That's going to mark the end of our show. We are on every app that you could ever imagine. So whatever podcast app you choose, we are there. 
We're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on NPR One. And also, if you are on iTunes, that is a really important way for us to get listeners. So ratings and reviews help. If you want to go on there and write a review and rate us, thank you so much. That would be a huge, huge help for getting us more of an audience. And uh, you can also pass around the link to your colleagues and your friends and your family members, anyone who's into the business of clean tech. That's going to do it for our show. I am Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. We are the Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. <laughs>